The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So in 1979, I uh, wandered into a class on uh, religions of India taught by Jack Engler. And my first contact with the Dhamma, with the teachings. And, you know, for me, it was a little bit like somebody taking a a bonfire, dousing it with kerosene and throwing a match on it. It was just this... I was, I was taken, I was ignited, I was on fire, alit, with this idea of waking up. And, and really from that point on, it was, it was pretty clear that I wanted the life of awakening to be the central axis mundi of my life. And... Jack spent time with um, Deepama and Manindraji and the whole insight meditation lineage and the whole forest tradition. And within all of this teaching, there was a really clear message that if we practice skillfully and correctly and apply the Eightfold Noble Path, we will awaken. And so I jumped into this with every ounce of fur and fang that I could muster. And it was like clear, you know, I, I'm, sign me up, I'm in, you know, I, this is what I want. I, you know, where do I go? How do I do it? You know? And, and so, you know, even simple things like birthday wishes on the candle, you know, what do I want? You know? It was just one thing that I wanted. It was just, it was really clear. And, and so as much as anyone can do, you know, a 17-year-old person, I put as much energy as I could put into practice. And after years, ended up in the monastery and did more practice. You know, and in a monastery, we have three-month retreats every single year. And oftentimes we would have Dharma talks two or three times a week. And during retreats we would have Dharma talks every single day or four times a day. I mean, it was an immersion experience and everything about our lives was around the Dhamma. And after 20 years of meditating, I began to notice that there were some things that I didn't understand, I didn't have any clarity about, And I had this intuition that doing more of the same thing was not going to bring me a different result. Like, you know, when you hit the computer and you hit return and it doesn't work and you hit it again and you think maybe if I do it again, somehow it's going to be different. And then you try a third time and a fourth time and, and then eventually the light kind of dawns. Doing it again is not going to bring a different result. I need to find another way in to communicate what I need. So in my situation, what I was aware of was that there was parts of my system that I didn't really understand very well and that the meditation wasn't helping me. Now, whether it's an operation, you know, a user fault 
or not, you know, I don't know. But what I knew is, is that after 20 years of dedicated application, there were some things that were not resolving. And there was places where I didn't have clarity, I didn't understand, and there was a lot of suffering that was still in my system. So I tried different modalities. I tried therapy, which I found incredibly effective. And then I spent time in the bush, which was mind-blowing in terms of allowing me to have access to different parts of my mind that I didn't have before. I did dream work, which was archetypes and illuminating things in different ways. I started learning about the subtle energy of the body and started to work it from different angles and began to notice that what I didn't have access to, what I was beginning to have access to, and the more I had access, the more my system was relaxing and I was resting back in my own skin. You know, the sense of, wow, you know, I'm not walking around feeling terrified all of the time, you know? And I grew up somebody who, I did well in school, and I had a smile on my face, and I thought I was fine, and had absolutely no clue the level of fear that I was living with all of the time. And I remember when I was in the bush in Australia, and I was washing my socks, you know, there's nothing around me that I have any sense of apparent danger. And yet, the alarm in my system was like, you know, there were, there, were, there were shotguns pointed at me. And I'd say, I'm washing my socks, you know? Like, wh- why is there so much fear, you know? And so for me, it was layers of unraveling, of looking at the way that I had disconnected from anger and repressed fear. And, and these were like strata, you know, archaeological strata. Fear and anger and fear and anger and fear and anger and fear and anger. And underneath all of it was this kind of pool of self-hatred which I had no clue was there at all. You know, this bright, capable, engaged person, and underneath this was this cesspool of self-hatred. And so for me, the bush and a different style of practice and learning to trust my intuition more and move outside of clear, defined uh, parameters of what I had previously understood practice to be. And feeling my body and letting nature mirror my mind was like unraveling in the best possible way. You know, letting the stuff into awareness to be seen and known and come to the light of day and, and relax. So that over time, bit by bit, I could feel myself more fully, understood what was going on, and began to have some more perspective. Why there was so much pain locked up in my system 
And so that exploration led on to more explorations. And with these more explorations, I began to get curious about attachment theory and how our early bonds with our, in, our, in our families really condition the way we see ourselves and that conditioning shapes the way we experience the world. And again, I was surprised because I, I could see things that made an enormous amount of sense and by having a frame of reference that was showing the way these connections were coming together, it gave me another point of leverage to bring attention into areas that I didn't have leverage before. And then there was a shift of values in the monastery and it became clear that the stuff that was under the carpet that we had been living with all the time was actually um, much more powerful than any of us had ever really reconciled. And uh, a, a very significant retrenchment of patriarchal values. And after many, many years of struggling with the dilemmas that were presented, I finally decided, enough. I would pay my respects and take leave of the community, and I would come back to the United States, and I'd find my own way. But before all of that happened, I started to get interested in Ken Wilber's writings. And he's written many books, and nearly all of them are completely unintelligible. (laughs) (laughs) You need to read the first sentence and not skip any words in any sentences and have a dictionary and write down the new language that is being created and keep all of the concepts. I mean, it's just, you know... He's absolutely brilliant, and it's really hard to read his stuff. But what I was getting in his writings, in his descriptions of of evolution of consciousness, is that there are developmental stages that are known about in many different systems, and that these developmental stages color the way we experience things, and shape the way we view the world. And again, there's a way in which we can all know how to speak English, but we don't necessarily understand the rules of grammar that operate the way that we are speaking. So we can speak, but we don't know the invisible structures that we are speaking through. So in my own experience coming into this path with absolute unwavering conviction that the only thing that I needed was meditation, that the only thing that I needed was to apply the four foundation of mindfulness to observe what was arising in awareness 
and respond to it skillfully, my life experience had actually showed otherwise. And when I looked around at my monastic colleagues and every single one of my teachers that was living in the monastery, I could also see that there were gaps between where their profound insight had reached and where it had integrated. And for reasons which I cannot really explain, for me, well, actually, I can explain. You know, I come from family members who were absolutely talented and brilliant in certain areas and that brilliance wasn't integrated in other areas, and the consequence of that was, for me, an enormous amount of suffering. So I came through my life experience registering that integration was a value that I held, that I wasn't interested in what I could observe, which is that you could get on the Dhamma seat and give this five-star Dhamma talk and get off the Dhamma seat and there's a trail of chaos everywhere you go, everything you touch, in every relationship you have behind you. It's like, I'm not interested. You know? I'm not interested. So, it elicited me an interest to try and begin to piece together different models where it's not as if anything in integral theory is antithetical to anything that I've seen in the Buddha's teachings. It's complementary. But it speaks about these stages of development and the lenses that we look through that we are not clear about the lens we are looking through when we're at the stage. It will shape our view. It will shape our experience. It will completely determine the way we interpret the world around us, and it is invisible to us. And there's no amount of sitting on a meditation cushion and doing contemplative reflection in silence that is going to illuminate the lens of our developmental stage that we are looking through. Because meditation is actually not designed to do that. That's not its purpose. It has phenomenal purpose, invaluable purpose, but that is not its purpose. So because in my experience I could see the suffering in my own life and I could observe it in my family, and I could see it in my monastic colleagues, I began interested in trying to find a way of integrating these things together. So a subtopic, which is part of the same conversation, would be a way of responding, for example, to trauma. You know... Trauma requires its own skill set to allow it to unravel. And when we have that skill set, it unravels more 
easily than when we don't. And so just for example, a common meditation instruction is to sit still. You know, just to sit still. And to be with what's arising and to watch it arise and to endure it and sit with it and release it as a mental experience. Yeah? And when we are navigating trauma activation, that's probably one of the worst things that we can do. What we need to learn how to do is to trust when we need to move with it, when we need to engage around actively running, when we need to allow the energy of anger to arise and be expressed, and to know that that's not a personal expression of defilement, that's actually a movement of health in clearing out the trauma. And I'll share just a simple example. I was exposed to a bunch of mold and my system crashed. And one of the consequences of my system crashing was I got environmental sensitivity and was reacting to about 60 different substances. And I was on the road and I was traveling. (laughs) People were incredibly kind and generous and really going overboard to try and care for this difficult situation in a way that was very loving. And I was staying with a friend. She had taken all of the chemical substances out of the house. She'd cleaned the house four days before so that it could air out before I got there. She welcomed me, invited me to come. I got into the room. I was tired. I went to sleep in the bed. And the sheets had been washed in fabric softener. And my system was like I had just walked through machine gun fire. I was absolutely freaked out, like I was in mortal danger. So my mind is saying, this is fabric softener. It's fabric softener. It's fabric softener. Relax, it's fabric softener. And I was not relaxing. So I did everything I knew with my meridians and my calming points and my thises and my thats, you know, to just get through the night. You know, I took the sheets off. I stuck them in a plastic bag. I stuck them in another room. And my system was absolutely activated. And then I had some appointments the next morning. And I needed to get on my bike and run downtown to go to the appointments. And I was shaking you know how it is when you haven't slept and everything feels raw and, you know, I, I just wasn't sure how it was going to be to get on the bike. I get on the bike and I start pedaling and I start feeling better and better and better and I'm pedaling faster and I'm feeling better and I'm feeling more calm and more regulated. And it's like, oh, you know, I needed to run away from the fabric softener. So when I actually physically engaged my muscles in an activity that would be like running away, my nervous system started to completely regulate. Okay? It was not interested in my rational mind that fabric softener was not dangerous. That did not help. What was needed was to engage at the level that I was activated, which was the 
primitive nervous system and to engage in a response that it can recognize. Get the hell out of Dodge. It's scary. Get out of here. So when I engaged my physical muscles in the same kind of motion that you do when you run, then my whole system started to calm down. Now, no amount of mindful awareness of what was happening was going to shift it unless I actually did what the system needed to do to unravel. And so that's a small example, though not so small, because many of us have got lots of layers of trauma. The way in which the meditation practice, which is a teaching of its own and has its own integrity, has context around when we need to apply it and how we need to apply it. And the more that I was able to learn about these different contexts, the context of emotional suppression, the context of attachment, the context of developmental stages, the context of trauma management, the context of navigating my own body energies, the context of working with kundalini, many different contexts. Then I could bring the foundations of mindfulness together and use them in a way that allowed me to be more connected and relaxed and in my own skin than when I was using the foundations of mindfulness with the premise that this is the only thing that I need. And if I only were to do this longer, better, stronger, then it would all be okay. So for me, integral awakening is the willingness to take parallel modalities that support bringing the profound insight that we can access in our meditation into the various many different components of our life, of our experience, of our relationship, and our world. Now, another example that happened in the monastery was, you know, when I got to the monastery, the kind of MO was that all problems could resolve if you sat silently long enough and meditated on them. And anybody who is in relationship, anybody who's in community, anybody who understands that there's only a partial truth to that. There are some things that we need to actually resolve in relationship. And so as a nun's community, we took on board the interest to learn communication skills about observation and the difference between judgment and observation and, and, and expressing needs and voicing requests and knowing the difference between a request and a demand and 
being able to let different people's points of view be heard. And it took years because it wasn't, it, it didn't come with sitting silently. It's not taught in our culture. And, and, and myself in particular, I, I wasn't very good at it, you know. I come from a power dominance model culture that just thinks that if I push hard enough, I can get my way. I don't know if anybody has seen anybody like that around recently. <laughs> you know, but that's the culture that we come from, you know. So to learn how to listen and to learn how to include and to learn that there are other models other than power dominance models and there are other ways of getting things done and getting needs met, it has been a learning. So to bring the insight of the intention of harmlessness into a relationship meant that we needed to develop skills that we didn't have. And you know, and all of us complained. I didn't become a nun to learn how to do this, to facilitate a meeting and to take minutes. I didn't become a nun to take minutes. (laughs) But when we're interested in the health and the harmony of the community and when taking minutes means that the people's voices that were expressed are remembered and things are done according to what we agreed, then, well, I take minutes. Now, culture evolves. And in the Buddha's monastic discipline and codes of conduct, there are descriptions about how to take care of slaves because in the time of the Buddha, everybody had slaves. So if you've got slaves, there's a right way and a wrong way of taking care of your slaves. Well, you know... Not so much anymore that it would be okay to have slaves, though we still have slaves, we just call them different you know, things. But to do that deliberately is not going to work in our contemporary culture. So the integration of our values of harmlessness, the integration of our values of wanting to create conditions where people are supported to wake up, need to move past the experience of our own mind-body systems into our relationship and into a culture. And that was the thing that was like, you know, come on, guys, you've got to be joking, you know? You're actually going to look me in the eye and tell me that this, which we know is harmful, you're going to support because it says that we're supposed to do this in the book? It's like, no. (laughs) You know, no. And you're not even going to talk to me about how harmful it is because you don't want to hear, because you don't feel like you can do anything about it. It's like, come on. 
You know, come on. This is not acceptable. This is not what I signed up for. You know. So we are in a juxtaposition in our world right now where there's a lot of pressure because there's big gaps between the depths of our understanding and the realities of what we're navigating. And we see that a lot. You know, we've pushed power dominance models into a physical world that's on the brink of catastrophe. So integral awakening recognizes that in addition to the interior domain of our experience of contemplation and the incredible power of being able to see clearly what's arising and responding to it, there's also the realm of relationships, there's the realm of culture, and there's also the physical world around us. And when we are committed to awakening and bringing that awakening into each of those domains, doing what we can in each of those domains, then a synergy happens that not only maximizes the possibility for the individual and the relationship, but also help support the healing of the land. Now, the Vipassana community that I grew up in was a kind of pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of culture, you know? It wasn't really strongly based in devotion, and there wasn't really a strong sense of... of, um, a holding other than the meditation practice itself. And what I learned living in Australia and being connected to the land, incredible, powerful land, is that this is a really impoverished view of the world. That when there is a rich, deep, heartfelt, soulful connection with the land, the land will support us to wake up. Just in the same way that when there is a heartfelt, soulful connection with a teacher or a person or a lover or a friend, they will help us to wake up. that it's insane to think of us having to do it on our own. In some ways, even though it is our own effort that is a lot of what we're engaged with as part of the path. And so there's a balance between working with the conditions that support us and doing the work within. And for each of us, 
We have to find that path. What's the balance? Where do we resonate? What supports us? What's our work? Where do we need to put our attention? So I have a system that's sensitive. And, you know, it's just sort of the way I'm wired up. And last month, I've been feeling a lot of physical pain and thinking, what's going on? You know, why, why? I'm feeling a lot of pain. Something's wrong with my immune system. I've got, maybe it was, I, I caught something when I was in Yellowstone. Maybe, you know, there's some, something's weird. Maybe I should go to the Mayo Clinic. They'll figure it out, you know? And then, you know, two nights before the election and the pain is like through the roof. And then the election, it's through the roof. And then it's starting to, you know, the crescendo and then the crash. And it's like, oh, oh, (laughs) oh. I don't think the Mayo Clinic is going to figure it out. (laughs) But I found a friendly tree at prairie farm and when I'd lean against that friendly tree like 75% of the pain would just evaporate you know so I can't tell you why but who cares (laughs) you know it works it's harmless it's not against the vinya there's no precept that's broken about leaning against the tree it's like you know If it works, use it. And so for me, this whole concept of bringing awakening into all of these aspects of our lives in some ways is not separate from the Buddha's teachings. That's very much what the Buddha teaches. It's just that the tradition that I was raised with had a very narrow bandwidth about the kinds of tools that were considered allowable. And that was always curious to me, why it was so narrowly defined. (coughs) When I was living at Amravati, I was the work nun, and I was looking after the workshop. And the workshop at Amravati was a building that was, I don't know how many square feet, 2,000 square feet building that had a wood shop and a paint store and a joinery place and a wielding part and it had a whole rack of different kinds of screws and nuts and bolts and nails. And we had a thicknesser, a planer, and a bandsaw. None of those tools were listed in the vinya. None of them. There was never any ideological problem about going into the workshop and using those tools because they were not related to the mind. They were related to the material world. But when it comes to the mind, there were all kinds of opinions in the monastery about what kind of tools were considered valid or legitimate and which ones were not. And if you are really a cool monastic, then you only used 
the Vinnie-approved tools. Well, I'm actually not the slightest bit interested in being a really cool monastic. What I'm interested in is waking up. And what I'm interested in is living a life where there isn't a trail of pain and confusion and chaos everywhere I go and in every relationship that I have. That, to me, is cool. So I was willing to push edges and boundaries and find what worked for me. And encourage people to do the same for them. Because I see and value the results. Now, I'm a white person. I don't have black skin. And as a white person who doesn't have black skin, I have privilege. And that privilege can go unnoticed unless I make a particular effort to look at this invisible lens that I have. Because the nature of privilege is is that it protects itself. It doesn't reveal itself. It protects itself. So when I step back from my privilege and I can see that in certain circumstances my privilege is actually a cause of harm or hurt or pain or sorrow or sadness or a lack of feeling safety for others, then that gives me interest and energy to do the uncomfortable work of exploring this invisible bias that I have to see if I can make it visible. So that my life can be more genuinely a life of harmlessness. Because that's a value that I hold dear. And I'm willing to do things that are uncomfortable sometimes to hold that value dear. And I need help because there's things that I can't see that are invisible. This is what integral awakening is about. It's the willingness to hold values and then begin to see them from many different facets so that we see the way that we have interjected and projected and used these invisible lenses to shape our world and determine the way we experience the world around us. And to begin to start shifting them so that the invisible lenses are more and more congruent with the values that we genuinely hold. Sometimes it's not comfortable. And sometimes 
it's exquisitely satisfying to know that I can relax in my own skin and I have done as much as I know to do. And it oscillates back and forth. So I just want to say one more thing, and then we'll switch and have time for questions and Q&A. Can you all see the safety pin? (laughs) Facebook is my main source of information. (laughs) News reporting, current events, and world affairs. And on Facebook last night at 11 o'clock, I saw a posting that from Brexit, they had also uh, an experience of people, immigrant people, feeling scared and frightened and marginalized. And some genius came up with the idea of wearing a safety pin as a way of signaling that they were a safe person, that if somebody was engaging in microaggressions, that if somebody with a safety pin came near, that they were somebody that they didn't need to fear, that they were an ally. And right now, there are an awful lot of people in this world who are agitated, who are scared, who are frightened. Because people who are not white and male and cisgendered and heterosexual and Protestant have reason to fear. So something as simple as a safety pin is a gesture of harmlessness reaching across borders of saying yes it's scary and I'm here in whatever way I can be to be a source of safety so I'd like to just hmm. Transition to a time for comments or questions or feedback or discussion. Thank you so much for your talk. It was wonderful. First of all, safety pins are going quickly. This morning I went to three stores and they're already sold out. So (laughs) you might have to go to Amazon to get yours. (laughs) Um, So a couple, just one thing. Uh, I love Ken Wilber, too, but as I said, you know, he gets into the weeds very quickly. Just from a Dharma perspective, which books would you recommend for a beginner? There's two books that are intelligible that you don't need an IQ of 900 to read. One is Integral Vision, and the other, which I haven't read, uh, actually there's three books. Integral Vision, the most recent one is Integral Meditation or Integral Mindfulness. 
And the one that I haven't read is A Brief History of Everything. Yeah. Integral mindfulness is awesome. It's awesome. I'm going to be putting together an online course around it and going to be doing immersion retreats with that to take that material and begin to see if we can get some leverage around the places that we haven't integrated and transcended. I just wanted to say that I really totally respect you and I think you rock. And I, I just love the way you are talking about the male-female issues, the communication issues, um, this idea of stages, of being stuck in developmental stages, sort of blows my mind. I love the way you say that I, I can do everything that I can do, and I guess the only other thing you can do is just let it all go and uh, float, because you're beautiful and you are welcome here. And in my heart, thank you. Well, okay. All of the above. Um, I wanted to add, when you were talking about the feeling of um, what the privilege I carry, the, the pain that the privilege I carry um, of necessity places on other people, I wanted to add also that there's no way that the division that is caused by my privilege, which I did not choose, but which I don't always repudiate, that pain cuts both ways. And that the people who are obviously suffering economically and uh, in, in, in power places certainly are... Um, that's obvious and visible, and lear- we're learning about that. But we don't. We needn't forget that we have a, a, a built. We don't have to do a lot. We have to see the pain here, and then there's a momentum that carries us through those hard places to work on privilege. I would say yes, and and the yes, and is yes. There's certainly an awful lot of what you said that I resonate with is true, and also it's like you know part of the privilege. And I'm I I have a lot of learning to do, so I don't I don't I'm not a spokesperson on privilege, but what I see is is that there's a huge amount of structural and embedded um, racism that doesn't have to do with with um, the things that I think. It's the systems and the structures that are just built in that is also part of our privilege. And so when we're not cognizant of that it's there, that the impact of it, and that, uh, that we benefit from that impact at the expense that other peoples get the opposite, they get the hardship of it, then there's, there's a whole other thing, which is like the, it's like the fabric of our societies built on premises that are actually not in accordance with the values that I hold. And it's like, and then it's like, all right, now what do we do, you know? But to not go there because it's too uncomfortable is something that only people in privilege have the choice to do. 
people who are not in privilege can never make that choice. You know? So one of the things that was eye-opening to me, because as a white person, I didn't experience much lack of privilege, but as a nun, wow, did I get it. And we were up against this all the time, where you know we were getting stuff that was not meeting us where we were at, and it was deflected because of reasons that were not adding up. And we were having to carry something that was actually quite heavy, so heavy that for, for most of us, it was actually torquing our ability to use the monastic form for the purpose that it was intended for, which was to wake up out of suffering. Okay? Now, if that isn't bizarre, ironic, tragic, what is, you know? So I came out of all of that, you know, the megalomaniac that I am, thinking that there, this is my thinking. I'm a megalomaniac because I think that there has got to be a way to be both a Buddhist nun and not perpetuate suffering. Now, isn't that a radical thought? (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Anybody else? Uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your thought, too. It, it felt so authentic, and everything I believe you said was coming from who you are. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering if you have any suggestions of how to do with anger and rage, which I'm feeling a lot of right now, and <laughs> just because of the, the whole politics and thing, and it, it just touches me, and I'm just wondering if you have any insight as to how to deal with that. Good question. Uh, anybody else? anyone want to raise hands if you're feeling the same way okay so you're not alone I think there's a couple things with this one is that you know Buddhism gives a bad rap to anger and rage particularly rage you know because you know as good Buddhists we don't get angry and we don't have rage you know that's that's a defilement it's bad But one of the things about anger is is that it shows up when our boundaries are being violated as it's like, that's that's the mother bear. That's like, don't mess with my kids! You know? There's a real need for that, especially when you've got some of the things that are going on right now, which is actually, you know, worthy of concern. You know? So... Anger, when it can be distilled into its protective force, is really important. That's very different from the intention to shame, humiliate, or harm somebody else. Okay? That's this... You know, what is needed now, and I'll be there. You know, if I have to lift the car up off the kid, if I... Whatever is needed, I'm there. That's that kind of energy. And in this kind of a situation, we need to both access it, but we also need to be incredibly careful with it because anger activates the, the primitive brainstem 
And it's not very discerning and intelligent. It's like, you know? It's like just, it's not, well, you know, let's think of a strategy about what we need to do in order to protect. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it's very coarse. So what we need to pull out of that is the protective force to let the nervous system calm down so that we can bring forward the discernment and put things in perspective. Okay, oh yes, things are scary. Actually, they always have been, you know. Actually, we don't have any information right now about what's going to happen because the particular person who is involved is totally unreliable about everything. So even though he's promised to do all these terrible things, we have absolutely no assurance he's going to follow through on any of them because the only thing he's interested in is whether it serves him or not. Okay? So we don't know. So we can use that question mark to make ourselves more angry and agitated Or we can use that question mark to bring forward a sense of, okay, well, how can I calm this? What do I need to do now? Who's at risk right now? Who's really unraveling? Who needs some help right now? How can we coalesce as a community and work towards protecting the people who are the most vulnerable? What's needed? That's wise. To lash to blame, that's not wise. To internalize it, to collapse, it's not wise. So big energy needs skillful response. One more question. I'm trying to figure out the shortest way to answer to ask this question, um, <laughs> and it uh, you brought up the safety pin, and um, the work that I do, I work with underserved children and their healthcare needs, and so to support them this year or this week, I read on Facebook um, about the safety pins. So I went out and bought my whole staff safety pins. Um, and then I went back to Facebook after I got the safety pins, and it said, "Don't. it's not about a safety pin. Don't put on a safety pin. Um, the safety pin is just a small measure of you thinking that you're doing enough, and we can't just wear a safety pin anymore. So then I went to plan B and C and D, and then I realized that I was really overwhelmed with knowing the correct response um, and feeling at some point that I just wanted to go under back under my privileged rock and not respond to that early call of service that I had. So anytime any of us are feeling overwhelmed, we need to take care of ourselves, okay? We need a tree, we need a, a hand, we need a hug, 
we need a, a furry person to get our hands into. We need to self-nourish and self-regulate. Okay? Now, I have felt in these last few days that the world is out of control. There isn't a correct response to the world being out of control. It doesn't exist. There's nothing on Facebook we're going to find that's going to tell us how to deal with a world that feels like it's out of control. So I need to look at, is it actually true that the world is out of control? Or has an election happened and somebody who I don't have any confidence in has been elected with the turtles down in every direction in the House and the Senate? You know, It's true, those things are true, but what we do with it in our own minds is also has a lot to do with where we're placing our attention and what we're making out of it. So tomorrow, the workshop is about love. And I'm going to speak about different stages of love and about pervasive love. And any time I touch into pervasive love, I have confidence that is the right way forward. That is the right response. That is not hiding under any privileged rock. And pervasive love absolutely is interested in bringing itself into the world. It's totally not about hiding out somewhere. It's an experience of, of non-separation in the most exquisite and complete manifestation. But I don't hang out in pervasive love all of the time. And so I have to track where I am at any given point and be responsive and skillful to that. And it's not a kindness to me when I'm navigating my own pain and fear and overwhelm to then say to myself, I'm just hiding under my privileged rock that doesn't bring skill. It doesn't bring my system unraveling. It doesn't help me take care and do what's needed in order to then be clear about what we need. You know? And there's times when we just have to sit with, I don't actually know the right response right now. It's not clear to me what's needed, what my priorities are, who I need to be uh, looking out for. And sitting with that doubt is what we have to do. That is our practice, that moment is not know and learn how to relax around not knowing so it's 8.32 and I'm totally happy to stay but I don't want to keep people in here who need to go so I would like Shelley can you help what should we do (laughs) okay thank you yes please Actually, uh, I felt a great deal of distress, and I sort of thought that we need sister neighborhoods. We need to embrace neighborhoods across the city and come together and heal each other. And we have parks. We have a rich city. Um, I'm calling my representative. I'm going to write a letter to the mayor. I want to let you know that. We need to embrace I think that feels absolutely true. I've got shivers up my spine, you know. 
I th- that feels absolutely right to me. Yeah. Hi, uh, I loved your comment on pervasive love because on Wednesday I had to go to the healthcare setting where I work, and virtually all the patients are Trump supporters. And it was interesting. Um, my first response, just you know, when I walked in the clinic, I said, you know, I am going to practice. I didn't have a word for it, but pervasive love. And it was interesting. It made me feel better. Um, you know, I'm assuming, since I appear, must appear to be like a classic Hillary Clinton supporter, and of course now that I'm going to be wearing my <laughs> safety pin, uh, but it's interesting how it calmed me. It, it, it really was just very, very, you know, very, very soothing. Yeah, and that's the thing. Is yeah. that, that that's the thing about that energy is it's profoundly healing. And the healing is not, it goes every direction. Mm-hmm. You know, our own nervous systems are healed. The land is healed. The peop- it is, it, it, it's pervasive love. It doesn't have a boundary of who gets it and who doesn't and whether they belong or they don't belong or they're deserving or not. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not quite sure we have time to sit and be with our not knowing what the right thing to do is. I'm unsure we have time to do that. That's a privileged response. I have been incredibly involved in the Standing Rock movement. Yes. And... It's time to bring it home. And I'm manifesting things happening for our community. And I, would, I will be happy to share with what's coming up on November 20th. But we don't have time to sit around. There's a movement going on in this country right now. And it's time to join it. So when I talk about waiting until we know what's the right thing. It's not about a lack of engagement in the way that you're speaking. It's about when our minds are filled with doubt, to take three breaths, to take an hour, to take half a day, to just be with the fact that there isn't clarity about the next step, this moment. But what you're speaking to is the bigger picture which is that there are collective organizations who have mobilized, who have clear directions, who need our support Mm -hmm. because what they are doing is protecting something that is of critical importance to everybody, that we need to understand our connections that way. But in a situation like this where there's been such unsettling circumstances happening it just takes a little bit for people to go all right that's up the floor is still there i have my body it hasn't actually shifted that much what are the priorities what are the most vulnerable places where do we need to galvanize and put our energy that's not a three-year retreat it's just a pause to recollect it's like being hit by a bus or something you know what just what just happened but the reality is that everything that we're seeing has 
always been there. And that's part of the privilege, okay? That mask is being ripped off for some of us for the first time. And for others, they have lived with this their entire life. They have never known anything other than pervasive a lack of safety. So I invite you to share what's happening on November 20th. Please say more. And then see what happens about the community galvanizing around more information because we only have a couple minutes, but give a highlight. Pipelines, Indigenous Perspective, and Ally Building. Spirit United is the ho- is going to be the place where it is. Min 350 is going to come and educate us about what's going on in Minnesota. I'm hoping to have representatives from the three reservations, Red Lake, Leech Lake, and White Earth. I have two confirmed. They're going to speak to us about how it's impacting them. They're going to speak to us about how we can actually be an ally. And then we'll have an update on what's going on at Standing Rock. Spirit United is in St. Paul. It's on Lexington and Minnehaha. So is it possible for this information to go out in a newsletter? I'll get an email thing to Shelley. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing something. And I'm, I'm going to do it on... I'm going to take this discomfort that I felt in Standing Rock and I'm going to face it with my Minnesota indigenous relatives. I don't know what will come. You know, when I got here, Shelley was asking me what I wanted to do with my time. And I, because I... I'm from California. I didn't study remedial geography for native Californians. I didn't know how far Standing Rock was from here. And when I heard that it was only seven hours away, it was like every cell in my body was like, I want to go there, you know? It feels so important to me right now to just show up, to learn, to feel to be witness and visible support to that. And that's the motivation that brought me there. But I stood around making action art, and I heard over and over and over again of the abuses that are happening all across North America and South America. We don't have to go to Standing Rock. We can stand with indigenous people here. We can stand with... African-American people here. It's important to go, and if you're able to, it's, you're needed. Yeah. But it's right here. Yeah, thank you. Well, on those powerful closing words, I just want to express my deep appreciation for your being here tonight, for your openness, your receptivity, your listening, your courage, your joy, your tears of sorrow that we bring together. And I'd like to end with one more request, if I can. Maybe what we can do, if you've got an announcement, Shelley, please. But what I'd like, before we exit, is I want to have a, a just a simple kind of 
little blessing ceremony. So can you do your announcements, and then I want all of us huddle together and uh, share together. So as Alma mentioned, she does um, have a workshop tomorrow. It's from 9.30 to 4. There is plenty of space if you want to join. Alma will also be speaking on uh, our Sunday morning uh, practice group. Um, The only other thing I'm going to mention is we do have a community practice practice intensive that comes up, and it's for... um, a good part of the beginning of December. There's this little sheet out on the table out there that you could take with you for more information. Um, I'm also going to pass the mic quickly to Kyoko. She has one other reminder. Thanks. Um, I'd like to uh, invite people to consider um, well, there's a November 20th, go to the Spirit, or um, here at Common Ground, we are going to hold a, a day of remembrance. Uh, it's actually not going to be a whole day. It's going to be afternoon from 1 to 3.30. It's a day that um, we come together as a community to share our sorrow and grief um, in November, it is said that um, the line between the living and not living gets really thin, and um, we want we usually sell, uh, mark this date earlier in November around the Day of the Dead, but this year because of space and other things, it's later than usual. So, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, today that this is. Maybe it doesn't have to be just for those of us who experienced personal losses of our loved one. We are all in grief and mourning and, you know, our anger. There is a holy aspect to our anger and there's a holy aspect to our sorrow and grief and it really needs to be fully experienced and shared in community. Um, so, um I if you are interested please come this this coming not um tomorrow day after tomorrow it's November 20th uh Sunday from 1 to 3:30 and um if you're thinking about going to Standing Rock please think about inviting um the native people from here who wants to go but who don't have privilege of having a car. So that was a request I received to consider. Thank you. I think I'll just uh, mention too that as we um, really just take a moment to soak in and um, this really this gift that Ama has given us tonight that to remember that you can give back and in order to support Ama, there is a Donna bowl in the lobby. Um, 
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.